Brothers and sisters, we are ready to begin our second class. Our speaker is Brother Roger Lewis. The theme for Brother Lewis's classes this week is, Who Was the Nameless Man of God? Today's class is entitled, And This Thing Became a Sin. Brother Roger. Well, thank you, Brother Chairman, again, and good morning again, my dear brothers and sisters. And now we come to the story of the man of God, as we left him uh, in the last occasion of our study. So you might remember that on the occasion of that last study, uh, what we had was this. Let me just get something on screen first, so... There we are. So we left the man of God in our last study, buried in a grave in Bethel, and with a tombstone marker declaring to all who he was. It was really a reminder of the message which he'd cried against that place. And as we discovered, his death was such a notable event that everyone in that city knew, from the least unto the greatest, the drama of the story of both the death and the burial of the man of God. And whether the old prophet died soon after or not, we can't say with certainty, but no one in Bethel would forget that day, and we also know, do we not, that no one in Bethel would be ignorant of where the sepulchre of the man of God was. Because 300 years later, you'll remember, when Josiah turned around and espied that very place and said, what is this title? The men of the city said, it is the sepulchre of the man of God which cried out against these things. No, no one would ever forget. And yet in the first of Kings 13, in verse 33, we will read, and after this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way. Neither the death of the man of God or the dramatic conversion of the old prophet had any impact on the spirit and the attitude of Jeroboam himself. Not the story of the lion and not the sign of the sepulcher moved him in the slightest. In fact, the record says that he made again, but the margin says, and rightly so, he returned and made. So he didn't just, it's not that he didn't turn away from his evil way, he turned back to it again, he turned back to his sin. See, here's the spirit of unrepentant and determined sin, no matter what was said, he would not listen. In fact, if you come to Proverbs in chapter 29, I think we've got the spirit of Jeroboam at this moment, marked out in the proverb and with a warning attached to it. Proverbs 29 and verse 1 puts it this way when it says, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And you see, that's what's happened to Jeroboam, really. He's been reproved. He's been reproved by 
more than one and by more than one circumstance and by more than one event. And all he did is harden his neck. He refused to change. He refused to listen. And the warning of the proverb was that when that spirit is maintained in the life of a person, that finally destruction comes and it comes without remedy. And by the way, that's exactly what would happen to Jeroboam because we're told in a passage that we won't look at in the second of Chronicles chapter 13 in verse 20, it says, and Yahweh struck him and he died. That's how Jeroboam ended. Yahweh struck him and he died. That's the very outworking of Proverbs 29 and verse 1. That he shall be destroyed and that without remedy, the man that hardens his heart or his neck. In fact, that word in 2 Chronicles 13 verse 20 when it says that Yahweh struck him is the same word as the first of Samuel 25 verse 38 when it says, and the Lord smote Nabal. Do you remember? And he died. Same word. Of course, that hasn't happened yet in the divine record of the first of Kings chapter 13. But it sits in the background, brothers and sisters. We know that that will come upon Jeroboam in due course. Jeroboam didn't know. But the proverb would be fulfilled because of the law of consequences, wouldn't it? The law of free will was played out in Jeroboam's choices and the law of consequences would follow like an inescapable harvest as it does in all of our lives. Mercy versus judgment. Interesting answer perhaps to the question, when does God's mercy cease and God's judgment begin? Good question, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Perhaps the right answer is, God's mercy ceases when there is no possibility of repentance or change anymore. And when that moment has arrived in the heart of a person, then God's judgment only can be expected because he cannot work with them any longer. It's that stubborn refusal ever to listen or ever to change. And that was the spirit of the king at this time. In fact, you see what it says? First of Kings chapter 13, verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people priests of the high places. Well, that's what he did at the start of this story. Do you remember? Back in chapter 12. Ah, but the priests that he ordained in chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, I think that they were priests who could operate his new sanctuary in Bethel. And so the priests of the lowest of the people of chapter 12, verses 31 and 32 were the first intake for his main sanctuary. But now in chapter 13 and verse 33, when it says, he made again of the lowest of the people priests of the high places, he's now talking about all those houses of the high places which were in the cities of Samaria of verse 32. Now we've got other smaller shrines being built and a second intake of priests for the operation of all those lesser places of worship. So Bethel would remain the principal house of high places, but there were many other towns and villages now where you could go to become a priest in Jeroboam's priestly order. What did you need to be like to become one of Jeroboam's priests? Well, verse 33 says, Whosoever he would, or sorry, whosoever would, he consecrated him. Whosoever would means whosoever wanted. So Green's literal says, he who desired. Another translation says, anyone who wanted to become a priest. So what do you think the motive was for that sort of wanting? Prestige? 
importance, recognition, security. None of those were God-given reasons for priesthood, and yet Jeroboam exercised no discretion. He allowed anyone to become a priest without regard to learning or behavior. He only imposed one limitation, which would incidentally have excluded the poorest class, because every potential candidate was required to make a consecration offering of one bullock and seven rams. We're told that in 2 Chronicles 13, verse 9. Jeroboam says, if you want to become one of my priests, one bullock, seven rams. Do you know why that's interesting? Because in the law of Moses, when a priest was consecrated, and that only possible from the household of Aaron, they must offer at their consecration one bullock and two rams, says Exodus 29, verses 1 and 44. Jeroboam says, I require seven rams for the consecration of my priests. Or it made his qualification sound so much more impressive, but they were corrupt priests in a corrupt priesthood. But if they could manage that threshold, bring enough animals, and you're in, says Jeroboam. Welcome to my priesthood. And so the record says, verse 33, but of those lowest of the people, whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. Now why, brothers and sisters, why, why, why did he do this? You see, he created a priest that was a priesthood that was not only corrupt, but most important of all, they owed their allegiance to him. He consecrated them. He appointed them. He paid them. And as a result, they were totally loyal to him. He kept control. And that was the key. That was Jeroboam's spirit. That was Jeroboam's sin. It was all about control. Never mind the spirituality of the matter. And now let me take you to the end of this kingdom that Jeroboam had begun. Because if you come to the prophecy of Amos in chapter 7, we have a remarkable story that suddenly not only takes us back, but takes us forward. Because in the book of Amos, we're coming towards the end of that kingdom, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Ephraim, the kingdom of Samaria, the kingdom of Israel, which in fact Jeroboam had established. Now as the kingdom began you will see that that is precisely how the kingdom ended the spirit that Jeroboam had established. Now, you see what it says in Amos chapter 7. Perhaps reading from verse 1 for connection, it says in Amos 7 verse 1, Amos says, Thus hath Yahweh showed me, and behold, he formed grasshoppers at the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth, and there's a parable of impending judgment. Verse 4, Thus hath Yahweh Elohim showed me, and he showed unto me, and behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire. And there's a parable of impending judgment. Verse 7, Thus hath he showed me, and behold, Yahweh stood upon a wall made by a plumb line. And he says, verse 9, The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now we've got to be careful, brothers and sisters, because in verse 10 it says, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land's not able to bear his words. And that word Amaziah, by the way, the name of the priest, means Yahweh is mighty. But God wasn't mighty in this corrupt place. 
This man is not a high priest of the Aaronic order in Jerusalem. He's the high priest of a renegade priesthood in Bethel. He's the priest in Bethel. But when he sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, verse 10, that's not the Jeroboam of the first of Kings chapter 13, you realize. That's Jeroboam. Jeroboam of the first of Kings 13 is Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who establishes the kingdom. This is 150 years later. This is Jeroboam, the son of Joash, at the, almost the end of the kingdom of Israel, 150 years after the circumstances of the man of God in the first of Kings 13. But there's another king, funnily enough, at the end of the kingdom, who's also called Jeroboam. And Amaziah, who's the priest where? In Bethel. Notice, where is this corrupt priesthood based? In Bethel. The priest of Bethel sends a message to Jeroboam, the king of the day, and says, Amos has conspired against thee in the midst of the land. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, that's Jeroboam the second, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Well, at least that statement was true, brothers and sisters. Amos had certainly prophesied of the impending captivity of the nation. He'd prophesied of it in Amos chapter 4 verse 2, chapter 5 verse 27, chapter 6 verse 7, chapter 7 verse 17, chapter 9 verse 4. Oh yes, Amos prophesied that all of this would fall, but only because it was corrupt. And now see what the priest of Bethel says in verse 12. And also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, Go, flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there. So here at the end of the kingdom, a man of God comes from Judah, protests against the apostasy in Bethel, and is told immediately to go back to Judah and eat his bread there. Where have we heard that story before, brothers and sisters? And the story of the man of God from Judah in the first of Kings chapter 13, and here at the end of the kingdom, it's like the whole story is repeated all over again. But look at the spirit, look at the attitude of this man who leads the priesthood of Bethel 150 years later. Verse 13. He says to Amos, prophesy not again anymore at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel and it is the king's court. You see, the, the priest of Bethel made no endeavor to answer any of the charges of spiritual corruption that Amos had brought about the nation. In fact, when he responds, when he replies, he doesn't even mention the name of God. Now, what he says is this, and notice the emphasis, brothers and sisters. Prophesy not at Bethel. It is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. Now, where does the loyalty of this priest lie, brothers and sisters? His allegiance lies with the king. Who started that attitude in Bethel of priests that owe their allegiance to none but the king only? But Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made all Israel to sin. And as the kingdom began, so would it end, brothers and sisters. And that's what Amos is saying, you see. In fact, if you come to Amos chapter 9, we're told this. The final denouement of the matter will be, Amos 9 verse 1, a prophecy against the altar. And I think it's about the altar in, in Bethel, the very altar in Bethel itself. Amos 9 verse 1 says, I saw the Lord standing upon that altar. 
And he said, Smite the lintel of the door, that the posts may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. And so what, what we see here is a picture of God standing in judgment over both the altar and the sanctuary of Jeroboam I, which he had established in Bethel. And God promises that the day of judgment will come, and that house of high places will fall, that altar will be destroyed, and the people who associated with it would lose their lives. And so he says, verse 1, I'll slay the last of them with the sword, he that fleeth of them shall not flee away. He that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence shall my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. Though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. Though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword and it shall slay them. And I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And what Amos says at the end of the kingdom of Israel is that when God's judgment came, there would be no escape on all those who'd followed Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made all Israel to sin. So no wonder when we come back to the first of Kings, and chapter 13, we will find that it closes with these words in the last verse of First of Kings 13. It breathes the very spirit of the coming judgment of the book of Amos, you see. So it says in the First of Kings 13 and verse 34, And this thing became a sin unto the house of Jeroboam. What thing became a sin? The rival system of worship that he'd established, a rival temple, a rival altar, a rival priesthood. Green's literal says, and in this thing is the sin of the house of Jeroboam. Rodaham says, and so this thing became the sin of the house of Jeroboam. You see, it began as the sin of Jeroboam himself. But so successful was he in the introduction of a corrupted style of worship, and so deeply embedded were its worst aspects, that in the end it became the sin of the house of Jeroboam. Not just Jeroboam, but his house who followed him ever after, right to the end of the kingdom. It will stay the way that this man has established it in the first of Kings 13. It's thoroughly corrupt, and God could not delight in it. And so 1 Kings 13 verse 34 says, this thing became a sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. And those words, they breathe that very spirit of Amos chapter 9, don't they? I'll slay the last of them with the sword, and he that escapeth shall not be delivered, said Amos chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. And the 1 Kings 13 verse 34 says that he will follow the house of Jeroboam to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. And you see, this is the reality of life for all of us, the law of harvest, the law of consequences, is that in the end, the rival system of worship that was devised by Jeroboam to safeguard and control his kingdom became the very cause for its utter destruction by God. The very thing he'd done to preserve it became the basis for its removal by divine judgment. And the biggest tragedy of the story is that the warning of the man of God transformed the old prophet, but it couldn't move the king from his purpose. 
and God will never take free will away, you see. Jeroboam always had to be left with free will to choose. But he wouldn't escape the law of consequences. And so the words, verse 34, this thing became a sin, is the final haunting refrain that concludes the story. And we say a refrain, brothers and sisters, because we've heard that phrase before. In fact, that phrase marks how this story begins and that phrase will now mark how this story will end. It, it, it's a figure of speech, you see, and it's known as a chiasmus. Now, some of you will know what a chiasmus is. It's sort of like a set, a set of bookends where you, you start at the outside edges and the, the text is written in such a way that you're brought step by step into the middle point and the key is what lies in the middle. The middle is where the secret lies. The middle is where the answer lies. When Kennedy gave his inaugural speech, he said, in a chiasmus form, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And that's a very simple chiasmus with no actual centre in the middle, but you see how the two phrases are inverted deliberately. But a chiasmus in its fullness, a chiastic structure in a passage, is where the two ends mark off something that begins now to cascade into the centre, and it's the centre that we want to find. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that the national anthem of the Netherlands, called Wilhelmus, is based on a chiastic structure. There's 15 verses... And verse 1 is matched by verse 15. And verse 2, 1 in, from the start, is matched by verse 14, 1 in from the end. And then verse 3 is matched by verse 13. And so you come into the middle until finally verse 7 is matched by verse 9. And in the middle is verse 8, which must be the middle because there's no more verses left to compare it with. It's the center of the story. And in that national anthem, verse 8 is the key to the whole anthem. That's where the message lies, right in the middle. And that chiastic structure is deliberately designed in that anthem to take you to the centre. And so a chiastic structure is used to guide the reader to the key that lies in the centre. It's not exact verses necessarily, and it's not even exact words. It's about the matching and inversion of ideas. And why that's interesting is I think this whole story the story of the man of God is a chiastic structure. Now let me show you that on the screen. We'll look at it in our Bibles, but it will be helpful to see it on the screen because it will enable you to visualize it more clearly. There's a chiasmus in the story. Now if you come back to chapter 12, we notice this. First of Kings chapter 12 and verse 30 says, this is before the story of the man of God begins, because it really begins in chapter 13, verse 1, doesn't it? And we might say, by the way, that the story of the man of God finishes in chapter 13, verse 32. The last two verses are sort of like an epilogue to the chapter. And I'm going to suggest that these early verses, sorry, the last few verses of 1 Kings chapter 12 are the, the prologue. So when it says in chapter 12, verse 30, and this thing became a sin, 
Do you notice that that's how the story will end in chapter 13, verse 34? This thing became a sin. So it's like the bit at the start and the bit at the end are matched. And the next thing that chapter 12 says, in chapter 12, verse 31a, and of course 31a means the first part of verse 31, is that he made an house of high places. But if we come one step back in, at the end of the story, in chapter 13 and verse 33c, we'll find that he made priests of the high places. House of high places, priest of high places. And then the next thing that's mentioned in chapter 12, verse 31b, is that he made priests of the lowest of the people. That that's what chapter 13, verse 33 says, he made of the lowest of the people priests. And we suddenly realise, brothers and sisters, that what we're dealing with here, you see, therefore, is a chiastic structure and, and that's at the beginning and the end of the story. The story hasn't even begun yet. The story of the man of God lies just in here, doesn't it? Right in the middle, between the bookends. But you see, I think the story is a chiasmus as well. Now, would you like to see that? Let's track that through, shall we? Because if we can find the story of the chiasmus, then we might get to the centre. And if we can find the centre then we'll discover the key. So this is how the story itself unfolds. Jeroboam ordained a feast, devised of his own heart, says chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, and chapter 13, verses 33a says, and after this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way. So there's the story right there. Now that's the end of chapter 12. That's the end of the last concluding comments in chapter 13. And now chapter 13, verses 1 to 32, is the story of the man of God that sits in the middle. How does that story start? Do you see what it says? Chapter 13, verse 1. Let's just read it. Behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of Yahweh, and verse 2 says he cried against the altar. So the critical things, as the story begins, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, is a man of God came by the word of Yahweh and he cried against the altar. But do you see what chapter 13, verse 32 says? It refers to the saying which he, the man of God, by the word of Yahweh, cried against the altar. So when the story itself begins, we suddenly realise that there's a chiasmus in the story. And we're intended to see that there's a beginning and an ending. And we're going to come in towards the middle from those two outside extremities. And, and in chapter 13 and verse 3, we will be told concerning the sign of the broken altar and the outpoured ashes. But that sign will be counterbalanced at the end of the story by the sign of the preserved sepulchre and the undisturbed bones, the one sign set off against the other in contrast, inverted at the end of the story. In chapter 13 and verses 4 to 6a, we're told that the king opposes the man of God and seeks his death and is punished. But at the other end of the story, in chapter 13, verses 27 to 30, we find that the prophet mourns the man of God, ensures his burial, and will be blessed. 
Now, I should just say, at this critical moment, given the digital dexterity currently being displayed in the midst of the congregation, is that a copy of these slides will be made available at the end, so if you feel that you haven't quite kept up with me, fear not, a copy will be made possible. Can you sense how the chiasmus is there, brothers and sisters? Shall we move onwards and inwards? So the next thing is that in chapter 13, verse 6b, we're told that the man of God in compassion entreats the face of the Lord. You might remember it was a peculiar expression, to soften the face of the Lord. The face of the Lord. But that's counterbalanced at the end in chapter 13, verse 26, when the man of God in disobedience ignores the mouth of the Lord. In one case he softens the face, and in the other he ignores the mouth. In one case he acts in compassion, in the other he acts in disobedience, and they're set off against one another at the beginning and the end of the story. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 7, the man of God is offered a reward by King Jeroboam. But in chapter 13 verses 22b to 25, the man of God is going to be given a punishment. If you look at chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, in the charge that was given to the man of God, it says this, The man of God said I, to the king, I, I, Even if you give me half thine house, I, I can't go in nor eat bread nor drink water, for so it was charged me by the word of Yahweh, saying, Eat no bread or drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So the man of God was charged, in verses 8 and 9, to refuse all fellowship, and the specific things that he was charged with were, eat no bread, nor drink water in this place. But in chapter 13, verses 20 to 22a, the man of God is condemned for engaging in fellowship. And it specifically says of him in those verses, thou hast eaten bread, thou hast drunk water in the place. And it's the exact inversion of what he was commanded not to do earlier in the story, you see set off on the other side. Can you sense the chiasmus? Shall we move onwards and inwards? In chapter 13, verse 10, the man of God obeys and departs by another way. The record says expressly, so he went another way. But the counterbalance to that in the chiasmus is in chapter 13, verse 19, when the man of God disobeys and returns by the same way. So he went back with them, it says. When he leaves, he goes on a different way. When he returns, he comes back on the very road he's not entitled, not allowed, not permitted to travel on. One in obedience, one in disobedience. In chapter 13, verse 11, the truthful report of the sons is given to the old prophet. They told him all the works and all the words which the man of God had done, and their report was true on that day. But it's counterbalanced by the untruthful record of the old prophet to the man of God in chapter 13, verse 18, who lied unto him. In chapter 13 and verse 12, the man of God was seen in public on the route by which he chose to depart because 
The old prophet asked his sons, which way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went. There was something public about the moment of his departure. But when he talks about this in verse 17, he talks about the fact that he'd been told in private by God of the route by which he might not return. There's a chiasmus. And it takes us onwards and inwards. In chapter 13, verse 13, we know that the old prophet can depart out of Bethel. But that is counterbalanced by chapter 13 and verse 16, where we know that the man of God may not enter into Bethel. In chapter 13, verse 14a, the man of God is sought and discovered alone, sitting under an oak, all by himself, a solitary man. But that's counterbalanced by chapter 13, verse 15, where the man of God is welcomed and invited to share. Come home with me. And now, brothers and sisters, now we come to the point of the story where we can go no further inwards on either side. We come to the middle. We've come to the center. And here's the center, brothers and sisters, you see. Chapter 13, verse 14b. Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Oh, let me just slow you down, brothers and sisters, and show you that question one more time. And this time, I want you to read it in a slightly different way and tell me where you've heard this before. One question and one answer. And he said, Art thou the man of God? And he said, I am. Now where does that take us to in the Bible, brothers and sisters? Where does that expression, that interchange take place? What scripture are we led to? And we're suddenly taken out of the book of Kings into the gospel records of a man on trial before a council to the interrogation of that man in the very moment, brothers and sisters, of the trial of Christ, are we not? Let me show you that in the gospels, brothers and sisters, firstly in a couple of the gospels and then we'll turn to the gospel of Mark. But here it is, you see, in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew's version of the event of the gospel record is this. I adjure thee by the living God, says someone, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said. And that phrase, thou hast said, is an expression that meant in the, in the, in the, in the terminology of the day, you are correct, and it's equivalent to I am. A question and an answer. A question concerning identity and an answer in the affirmative. And as with Matthew, so in the Gospel of Luke, we will be told that they said, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And then said they all, Art thou the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. But that phrase, ye say that I am, is actually a rabbinic expression. And what that meant in rabbinical language was, Your words verify themselves. 
And by that expression, the one who was interrogated accepted as his own affirmation the question that had been put to him. And so Weymouth translates that, It is as you say, he answered, I am he. Art thou the man? And he said, I am. And suddenly the story of the chiasmus of the man of God takes us into the gospel record and the very drama of the moment of the trial of Christ. And now come to the gospel of Mark, brothers and sisters, in chapter 14. And let me show you Mark's account and see how we might see the shadow of the man of God sitting over this very story at this very moment in the story of the Lord's life and of his trial. Mark chapter 14 and reading from verse 61. And here's the moment, here's the episode that, that brings the story of the man of God into the very climax of the gospels. It says, but he held his peace and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now you see that word blessed in Mark 14 verse 61. It's the Greek word eulogetos. It's only ever used of God. But it actually means he who is to be praised. So the question that was put to the Lord was, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Praised One? What was the question put to the man of God, brothers and sisters? Art thou the man of God that comest out of Judah? Do you know what Judah means? Praise. Art thou the man of God that camest out of praise? Art thou the Christ, the son of the praised one? It's the same question, brothers and sisters. And the man gave the same answer. The man of God said, I am. And Jesus said, verse 62, I am. And his answer was clear and unequivocal, but in the moment the Lord gave that answer, his future was sealed. And suddenly we realize, brothers and sisters, that the secret to the story of the man of God lies hidden in the narrative itself. And the chiasmus will give us the key. Who would have known that such a secret lay beneath the surface of the story? Who would have known that the answer to the riddle was going to be found in the record all along? That here is the scriptural warrant to see a deeper meaning and another layer to this story. And of course, the moment we see it, we see it, brothers and sisters, don't we? The moment you see that echo, you suddenly see the whole possibility. The possibility of what? The possibility of an, a whole parable sitting behind the story that might in fact be there. Another story within a story. So what would that story be, brothers and sisters? A story that must begin in the shadow of the one who was asked, Art thou the man of God? But a story that ends in the dazzling light of the one who was asked, Art thou the Christ? Well, God willing, brothers and sisters, that story 
will be the substance of our final study.